Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. The director of Salam Bombay, Mississippi Masala, Monsoon Wedding, Vanity Fair, Mira Nair. Congratulations. And you're the first guest to bring her own water, so that was, you didn't have to do that, but we appreciate it. Gandhi taught me a few things. <laughs> when, when, whenever you hear that a, a filmmaker is going to take on the challenge of directing a classic eight or nine hundred page novel, the fir- you know, your first response is, how can they do it? Just tell about your um, you know, history with this novel, Vanity Fair, and then your decision to direct this. Well... We are all born sort of colonial hangovers in India and uh, steeped in English literature, whether we like it or not. And as it happened, one of the most influential teachers in my uh, upbringing was uh, Sister Joseph Catherine, an Irish Catholic nun who Mm. introduced me to Shakespeare and Blake and Keats and Shelley at the age of 15. And I read Vanity Fair, not on the syllabus, but kind of under the covers Mm. when I was 16 years old. It's the sort of novel... Well, first I loved Becky Sharp, and I always remembered her. Yeah, the character Becky Sharp, because she was a lot like we were, you know, uh, girls who didn't didn't have it all on a platter and and had to make her own way. But then, as it was such a banquet of a novel that I used to keep rereading it every few years, and every few years it gave me something different. Mm. And... uh, but I never thought to make it a movie or anything. It ha- two years ago, exactly, Focus Features, who was distributing Monsoon Wedding, which was kind of running away with itself, uh, asked me a to direct... Ch- international yeah. hit. Yeah, success, yeah, and yeah. they didn't expect it, I don't think, to yeah. be that way. And they said, you know, what about doing our next biggest thing? And it was Vanity Fair without yeah. them realizing that I'd actually had this long history with it. Yeah. So I said yes instantly. But uh, they had developed the script over 10 years, various writers and so on. And the script was not um, what I loved about Vanity Fair. It was much more almost the tale of Madonna. And uh, I didn't, (laughs) you know, it was uh, just a star vehicle of the most, in a sense, the boldest sort. And uh, I just loved the incredible tapestry of humankind that that Thackeray had woven and had woven with such a clear eye and with such a political view and with such a fine cross-section of colony and empire, which certainly Austin and all of those then had no awareness of, or I shouldn't say no, but I didn't get it from any of them. Uh, It was really our world, but seen through an Englishman, or an Englishman who was born in India. So it was quite interesting. And I think you described Thackeray as as the equivalent of a cinema verite filmmaker of his time. Well, so. because he wrote the cinema verite of his day in the, yeah. in the novel. He wrote Figaro, he wrote about the plays that were happening, he wrote about the food people loved, he wrote seven pages about the brocade vests that Joss Sedley had tailored in, near Bogliwala in Bengal every time he right. chose to come back to England to show what a nawab he had become. Right. He wrote about all these things with great joy. He was a real foodie and a real fashionista. <laughs> he was, as I am. <laughs> The character, Becky Sharp, uh, could you talk a bit about how your approach to her is, is different than Thackeray's? What, and there's a lot of ambiguity about her. 
that's really interesting. Well, you know, Thackeray yeah. wrote this as a page turner. He wrote it as a yeah. monthly tabloid. He had to sell it by the chapter. And, uh, and it was very interesting. In the summer, after I said yes in May, I went back to Kampala, where I live in the summer, and I had taken everything there was about the milieu in which Thackeray wrote this novel. And in there were actual uh, manuscripts, notes from his editor, from the, from the tabloid, saying, listen, make your, you're enjoying your heroine too much, uh, Becky Sharp. You know, got to make her basically bitchier. Make Amelia the sweeter person, etc." He was trying to crank up the, you know, the volume on various things. Yeah. And Thackeray would capitulate, but hmm. not, not uh, happily, I, I, at least in my view, not happily. You know, he hmm. would suddenly screech about Becky's lack of maternal instinct, which, of course, I preserved. But right. other things, other things, like he would right. say, oh, widow, you know, he would make rumors up in one line and then leave them and not resolve them, things like that. But I think that uh, Thackeray was the ultimate outsider in his own society. He, he observed England because he was raised somewhere else and then came. Yeah. And in making Becky Sharp, he actually created a great outsider like himself, an outsider to his society, but wanting to belong, you know, wanting to right. be an insider. Which uh, obviously would be a theme that you'd be interested in just because of your life. I mean, you've, you've been an outsider, entered different... Depends which point of view. <laughs> <laughs> as President Marcos says, when, when he came here and he was described as the president of the Far East, he said, far from where? <laughs> so I don't know, outsider from where is the question. Yeah. Well, you've been interested in people who, who try to fit in <laughs> to worlds like, I mean, Salam Bay, which is about a, a boy in poverty in, in Bombay. He survives by his wits on the streets. And in a way, you seem to be interested in these people who can I go am. into a, a world and take an outside view and, and I make am. it. I am most inspired, yeah. really, by survivors you know, mm -hmm. of all kinds, and especially yeah. survivors who don't have time to pity themselves you know, yeah. or don't have that inclination, right. like Becky Sharp. Yeah. I, I think that there's a great uh, lesson and it gives me a spring to my step yeah. and it sort of questions the whole basis of what in this society especially we think we need, you know? Because yeah. survivors just survive, you know, right. manage. Of course, the novel ends with this, this question about who of us really is happy and who of us really has what we desire. And, and there is this question in a way, is all this striving of Becky Sharp's really worth it? She's admirable and she rises to the top, but you also really make it clear that, you know, what is it, what is it that she's really achieving? But it's not just Becky Sharp, yeah. that question. What I, that's why I love this novel, yeah. is that question is asked of us all and mm -hmm. of us, all the characters. You know, everybody yeah. in Vanity Fair, like in life, all want something they cannot get, you know? Right. And they're all striving for something. And some of us are blind along the way and some of us know the journey we are on. Yeah. But everybody from old Osborne who loves his son but will not make peace with him, uh, Rawdon yeah. who finally finds the love of his life and they are both rascals, too much rascal perhaps yeah. for each other, whatever. Everybody, and Dobbin obviously suffering for Amelia and Amelia not even noticing Dobbin, everybody is wanting something more, you know? Right. And in the process, things can happen which make you oblivious to what is precious. You worked on this with uh, a great screenwriter, Julian Fellows, and, and could you talk a bit about how that process worked, how you collaborated? Sure. I uh, spent about two months on my own, uh, first charting the map uh, of life, as I call it, in, from the novel, 
and very clearly, you know, what I would want in addition to Becky Sharp and how I would want to see Becky Sharp, you know, because I come from, in Bombay, there's a lovely phrase, which is Paisa Vasool. Paisa Vasool is slang for the street where they say, give me my money's worth, you know. So I very much want to make movies that are Paisa Vasool, you know. Yeah. So it is no fun to make a movie where you hate the protagonist, you know, right. like you just can't stand her from the beginning without it ma mattering in some greater way. So one big invention that I began with was the beginning of no showing you where Becky comes from. Right. This was suggested in the book, and Thackeray was a great, he used to make great etchings to accompany his tabloid, yeah. you know. So he had a wonderful etching, which was the inspiration for the beginning, which was of Becky Sharp, a young Becky doing puppets. And I thought that was a great... Uh, symbol of everything that she will do in her life. And yeah. so I wanted a scene, one scene, which had to say many things, because the studio right. wanted basically to me to start with Reese Witherspoon, you know, right. as Becky Sharp entering, and that was that. But I thought I would spend 20 minutes convincing the audience to be on my side with Becky yeah. if I started with just with Reese grown up. You know, so we had that one scene yeah. where we invented the through line of the painting. Because, again, I, you know, in India we are used to these themes. We are brought up, brought up on these themes of a girl who goes from rags to riches, who rises through the seduction of singing, of a moral gentleman in a corrupt world, of all these themes are, you know, mother sacrificing her son. These are themes that are the milk of yeah. Indian cinema, kind of. Right. And, and, uh, and one of the things, which is in any cinema, is that you want the appeal. You want the audience with you, you know. So I wanted to have a hook, and the hook we created, the painting, you know, of Stain coming in when she's seven, when she's running her father's business, yeah. for you to feel that she would, what it is to be a motherless child. Yeah, I wanted you to feel that instantly, you know. Yeah. So I didn't have to win you over as yeah. Becky's escapade started, you know. Yeah, and then it was a very yeah. interesting moment in the end. You talk about the maternal instinct when that... Just that little touch when, when uh, her son is taking his first steps and she's too busy. painting, too busy with mm -hmm. her own painting. Her own yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I like that. I think yeah. that we all suffer from folly and we shouldn't, you know, think that we are above folly. Another thing about the opening scene that was so important for the rest of the film is that it's a, it's a transaction, that there's, there's haggling over money. It's all about money. And ev yeah. almost, almost every single scene in the film, maybe not 100%, is about money, about Absolutely. needing money, tr um, making money. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the first close-up of the film is money, transaction yeah. of money. Yeah. And um, I'm glad, you know, you mentioned <laughs> it because that is the whole foundation of, of the whole striving for class and money and hierarchy and status and that's what Thackeray is talking about, you know. Yeah. But enjoying himself while talking, but that's the basis. You know, yeah. Money and then cla well, class is money and then race, you know. Yeah. And then how England at that time that he was make, wrote Vanity Fair was a England that was getting fat on the spoils of India. Basically, yeah. the middle class now had money and they wanted the status of the yeah. titled, but yeah. they couldn't because that, that was straight jacketed. And how yeah. do you find a Jamaican heiress that you can buy and, you know, buy, buy a title, yeah. you know? So many, I haven't, I've only seen one other th Vanity Fair, but yeah. many th uh, Vanity have been made, but nobody thinks to, you know, go and use this theme that he yeah. has spelled out so beautifully yeah. of race and class and co right. colony and empire. Becky is materialistic, but, she, but um, you do make it clear that, there, that there's genuine love, for example, for her husband before he goes off to war. I mean, I, I don't know if it's um, 
has to do with your approach to the character that's different. Well, I wanted a credible novels. love story. I mean, they did love each other. I, I thought in the book, I mean, yeah. but I really wanted it to have, I thought that they were like an earlier avatar of Bonnie and Clyde, you know? <laughs> I, I, yeah. I thought of them like that. Like, yeah. they've, it's just gotta be, you know, it's just, you have to feel the heat, you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and that's the tragedy, because if you don't feel the heat, you won't feel the pain when he yeah. leaves her. You know. Now, uh, obviously, the um, the casting of Reese Witherspoon is a major, major choice. And could you talk about that, that decision to use her? And um, and also, when you cast a star like that who's made... In a way, she's made movies where she's played climbers. I mean, her mainstream movies like um, Election and Legally Blonde. Um, so Star brings all of her past movies. Well, Reese sort of actually... It was a Becky Sharp move. She, she called me up... Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, a year before I was offered Vanity Fair, maybe eight months before, uh-huh. and said, I mean, there was no Vanity Fair on the horizon of any kind, and she said, I'm Reese Witherspoon, I uh, love your films, and I would love to work with you, hmm. and please can we meet? And I had, of course, seen Election, and I had seen Man in the Moon, which I had loved. Mm. Uh, and my son made me see Legally Blonde between the phone <laughs> call and the meeting. <laughs> And I thought it was pretty extraordinary, in fact, actually. Yeah. And uh, anyway, met her happily. And um, it was a very direct meeting. Very, and she offered me two films that she was wanting me to direct her in. But they weren't my thing. And we just started a friendship. Uh, and then six months later, I was offered Vanity Fair. And I yeah. returned the phone call. And she said yes instantly. And yeah. the studio was really delighted. I mean, because Reese has... You know, not just the great intelligence, without which you can't play Becky Sharp, but she has that minx, the, the lovely Thackeray word, the minx-like character, and mm-hmm. this appeal, this fantastic thing called appeal, which make actors movie stars, and which would keep me and the audience in my pocket, I thought, you know, which would keep me, uh, allow me to be cunning with Becky. Yeah. And then, for me, the surprise as a director, because it's not interesting to for me, to cast an actor who I've seen do exactly that before. I want to discover something, you know, otherwise it's like wearing old shoes in a way. So I asked, I uh, wanted to see if we could go on this journey to make her a complete womanly creature with great complexes and great, you know, range of emotion, you know. And that was what was so extraordinary about working with Reese, because she's really applies herself, and she's impeccably prepared, and she's really trusted me, and we had this great uh, journey. Yeah. And there's just an interesting uh, sexual chemistry and tension between not just her and her husband, but other characters in the film, with Stain and with George. I mean, there's just a lot going on there. That's, that's my middle name. <laughs> just kidding. It used to be in India, and I was fighting... Uh, Fighting battles for unbanning Kama Sutra, then it used to be my middle name. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, talked about giving, giving the audience their money's worth. You, um, and uh, there's so much in every frame. I mean, every, every section of every frame is just filled with, with so much detail. I'm just wondering how you deal with a, uh, what was a r- really a small budget for this movie. I mean, how does that affect, how does the size of the budget affect how you're going to make a period film? How are you going to pay attention to things like production design and costume? You know, um, making Monsoon Wedding on a million dollars is like making this, this, this Vanity Fair on 23 million. Yeah, Monsoon wow. was a million. I mean, that was because we chose to make it on a million and then yeah. we had a plan, you know, yeah. and we had to make a plan. We didn't yeah. have, you know. So it's the same kind of 
energy and the same kind of thought. Basically, it's a, you have to have know exactly what you want to do yeah. and then have a very strategized plan to yeah. make it happen so that your money goes on the screen in such a big way that people are not even realizing that you don't have it, you know? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know... And by th if it sounds complicated, that sentence, but all, uh, what I started off, even before we r began rewriting the new script with Julian, right. is to say, I have four set pieces. You know, let's make four large set pieces. One was the Vauxhall Picnic, the other was Waterloo, um, the other was the Escape from Brussels, and the ball, the Duchess mm -hmm. of Richmond's ball. So how do I then really put the money there? Yeah. Is The way to do that is to then put 12 scenes that otherwise yeah. took place in ante rooms and interiors yeah. and drawing rooms and places that you imagine period films to yeah. be shot in, uh, bring them out to these scenes. For mm. instance, Amelia and George having that spat as they're walking into Waterloo, you know, into the ballroom, you know, in, in, in Brussels, where he, she says, why, we don't know anybody, why are we going? And he says, I wish you would get your, off. you know, basically their first marital quarrel. And in, that was in the dressing room yeah. while she dressed for the ball, you know, which is a movie, which is a scene you might have seen hundreds of times. Right. But because I would have a day to shoot that scene in the interior, I instead bought that day to my exterior. So it gave me more money to populate the exterior and fill it with mangy dogs and drunk people and sailors and hundreds of people <laughs> and all that so that it wouldn't just be one shot of Becky arriving in the ball, which is what it was meant for. Hmm. So when you do a big scene for yeah. one shot for Becky yeah. arriving, right. it's not Paisa Vasool. You don't get your money's worth, yeah. you know? So I put other scenes, like Amelia and George having a spat or Dobbin saying farewell to Amelia or basically how to make, give, me, give me more money right. and time to do, yeah. the, to do these scenes but in a grand way right. so that you really feel the fulcrum of what was Waterloo in Vanity Fair. Waterloo changed everything, every character's fortune mm. in Vanity Fair. Mm. So I really wanted it to be this momentous thing, yeah. you know. So s like that. So it's strategizing and planning and then spending the money in a yeah. very wise way. The um, color is so rich and lush throughout the movie. And it, um, you know, at the time the, the film is set, the British Empire was so vast and there were so many influences coming in from India, from all parts of the world. And that sort of justified, I guess, why the costumes could be so colorful, the men's costumes were even. Well, uh, he, he re really told us a lot about the costuming. He really wrote in pl with pleasure about the mm -hmm. costume. But a big criteria for me was to work with people who had never worked on an English period movie. Mm. <laughs> because, you know, I couldn't really be dragged to see those movies, most of them. And, and, and I didn't want that kind of well-bred patina that goes with them. And, and I loved Beatrix Pastor. She's a big, uh, visionary costume designer from Hungary. She did The Fisher King. That's how much I loved her, yeah, mm. for a long time. Mm. And Becky was a style setter. She never had money, but she used to do things with rope and fabric and f feather and fur and make herself look more distinctive than mm. the heiress next to her in the diamonds, you know. And that's what Beatrix also did. Mm. And, uh, and because, again, of this intersection with Colony, I wanted to go that palette, you know, with indigos and crimsons and so on, you know. Yeah. But we also kept it very filthy and dirty and, right. you know, <laughs> dusty. I tried to get the whole uh, reality of what it is like to live in dysfunctional aristocratic English families, you know. I mean, they're <laughs> deeply dysfunctional, yeah. like many aristocratic families. But, um, but, you know, and but you don't see that. You don't see the kind of drag with which they drag on their uh, fancy wig when right. the, uh, you know, rich heiress comes over. And, you know, yeah. the kind of normalness, a normalcy with which how we are today. Like, oh, God, do I really <laughs> have to wash up? It's the same deal, you know. Yeah. And, but... Uh, 
it's just was such a pleasure to bring all that to That's life. That's right. The, yeah. the, the typical period film just makes you want to look at all these old houses and, and want to live there and make you feel like everything is beautiful. You yeah. maybe. <laughs> 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 Not me. <laughs> um, if you could compare your approach to Thackeray to Stanley Kubrick's ap approach, because of course he adapted Barry Lyndon. So I don't know if that was a film. Well, I love that. I mean, I saw the film again while we were shooting this one. Um, I think it's a very different approach, uh, only because of pace, because of the zany, sort of the fr much the zanier pace, I would say, of this film. And it was multi-layered, the story versus Barry Lyndon, which is much simpler in terms of the char two characters, three characters, not huge. You know, and this was like vast amounts of people and their history. I took some tips from the humanity, the, the unfolding quality of his scenes. He had, he had such bravery to let you just feel that pace, you know. I love that. So some of that I learned uh, from him. But otherwise, we just have a different, um, you know, take. He, his is cooler, and mine is much hotter. <laughs> <laughs> the question that begs to be asked is the relation of, of Indian cinema, because the, the vitality of, of Indian film seems to show up in some way in your movies? Well, you know, I, I mean, I'm sort of an odd bird because I don't really belong to the Bollywood system right. or to the commercial right. Indian system, and I've already d always done sort of an oblique thing from it, but I enjoy a lot and learn a lot from it, uh, besides the themes I mentioned that yeah. were common. Um, emotional intent of a scene is very important in Indian cinema. I wouldn't say Bollywood, because Bollywood sort of implies a kind of high kitsch. The I'm talking cinema, now yeah. much deeper, like, you know, the Guru Dats or the, the old Raj Kapoor, and, you know, the great commercials from commercial yeah. directors, you know. And that kind of emotional intent of every scene, especially when you're doing so many parallel stories at once and, and trying to do so many things in every one scene, mm -hmm. that learning or that emotional dagger in your heart kind yeah. of thing is from Indian cinema in the sense that I'll give you an example of when um, Osborne, when Dobbin comes to tell, ask Osborne to come to George and Amelia's marriage, you know, to forgive George before he goes to war. And uh, he says, but George married, George married Amelia this morning. You know, Dobbin has to sell, tell him. And I just told Reese Ifans, um, you know, you love Amelia and, you know, even though you have made this marriage happen to save Amelia, uh, you cannot bring yourself to say that line. You know, mm. it, it's, and the, right. what I said was, you know, you, it's a dagger in your heart. So yeah. say it l with that in mind. Yeah. And that's like a, that's something an Indian audience will expect to see. You know, is Reese Ifans just yeah. not being able to say that line? You know, yeah. and of course he's such a fine actor, and actors also love that kind of. I mean, at least my actors <laughs> love that type of specific direction that he loves. You know, so that the intent of every scene, emotional intent, is I would say from the from India. You know, an influence of India. Now you, you were an actor for for a while before you went into photography, so right. I, I'm sure your acting background comes a lot into play in your work with actors. I mean, clearly you... I, I just love actors, and I know that it's, you know, it's not enough. Like, many directors don't talk to actors much, and I talk to actors a lot. And uh, I like to create an atmosphere where we can all make fools of ourselves, you know, as I always say. So immediately <laughs> people start laughing, and, you know, the ice is broken. But, yeah, I love, I love to work with actors, yeah.
Okay, yeah, if you could talk a bit about your ideas behind a big dance sequence towards the end. Well, you know, in the book, it's, it's uh, seven or eight pages where Becky is dressed in next to nothing as a slave girl with Stain dressed as her pasha and her owner. And they are playing the game of dumb charades on the theme of slavery in front of the king. Uh, and all these other ladies of the court, and they're guessing words, you know. And that's the scene, and it's in this very uh, extravagant uh, party for the king. And this was pre-Victorian, so this was the time that England was really given to excess and flamboyance. And I just took the same elements and the same intent of that scene and thought it was just far more cinematic instead of them sprouting words to to dance to and because we were talking about the again this colony and in, empire intersection with clothing and music and all those you know ideas and money of course i thought what you know to use the music as well so that was and you know it's 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 just taking seven pages of uh, not very cinematic action and making it cinematic okay question in the back here yeah given how thoroughly enjoyable this film is what are you thinking of doing next <laughs> Okay, this, he cannot wait to see your next movie, so what are you thinking of doing next? I, I'm, I'm uh, doing a beautiful, beautiful book that knocked my socks off in February when I went to film uh, the ending of this movie, um, The Namesake, Jhumpa Lahiri's The Namesake, who is a great writer uh, and um, New Yorker and won the Pulitzer for her first fil- book, uh, Interpreter of Maladies, and this is her debut novel. And and uh, it just moved me. It's about, it's sort of the road I've traveled in a way. Of mm. It's about a young couple who leave Calcutta in the 60s to come to Cambridge, Massachusetts, mm. and then it, uh, it, in contemporary New York. Especially after this film, which I have really beloved for a long time, this, this particular story, I just felt this visceral need to um, make films, uh, well, see my own, sto- me, my own people through my lens because especially now, you know, we are everywhere and, and, and we are also on the roads that I live on, you know, in the sense that it's a part of my everyday life and I'd love to try and capture that in, in a film. If you could talk about the dedication to Edward Said. Edward, you know, opened our eyes to so much in the world and uh, his writing, well, anyway, he was also a great movie buff and he was my neighbor. And uh, we had a great, uh, wonderful friendship, and I miss him dearly. And uh, we had um, two pretty lovely conversations about Vanity Fair when I was writing, working on the script. Mm. Uh, you know, because he lived literally next door, and uh, he loved my films, and we, he would come to every film of mine. And uh, because he had written on Vanity Fair in in one of his books, uh, again this intersection of colony and empire, I would talk with him, and he would love that. He loves. He had such a curious mind, and so. For me, it, I mean, it's also of, of course about his political work, um, but it's also how much he, you know, inspired me and uh, how much I miss him. What still intrigues you about, after all the great movies you made, what still... In- <laughs> what do you <laughs> What do I like still it? like about it? Yeah. Well, you know, what I really like about it is that I only do what I want to do, and nobody can get me to do anything else. And... Uh, even when it's been really crazy and lonely, especially in the beginning when I made films and documentaries on India and I lived here and I made films there. And in India, they didn't want to see the documentaries. Here, I would take them under my arm and go on the Greyhound and go anywhere. For $300 a pop, I would show films and talk about them. And people would look at these films and say, you have running water in India? And, uh, <laughs> you know? And you know, uh, and, and and I would they said, do you live in tree houses? And I would say my elevator broke down, but yeah, I do. You know, or I would try to make jokes, but in, in in inside I would think, who am I making films for? I would feel terribly lonely. And so, 
in a way, I didn't get off that path, except I made, started making feature films, fiction films, which was with Salam Bombay, a kind of combination of real life plus fiction. So anyway, that was what I wanted, is to communicate with people. So anyway, what I was trying to say is that I haven't kind of capitulated to, to something that was expected of me. I've kind of, even though it was lonely and even though it was always a struggle in some senses, I kind of bashed on. And now I find, to my surprise, that I have an audience, you know? And that just uh, constantly disarms me. I love, I love it, but it's also not, I'm not used to it. But now a lot of people come to me for my sensibility. You know, like when Focus Features offered me this film, they, had, they were fully aware that they wouldn't be getting Merchant Ivory. You know that they would get my film. You know, so and they loved that also. They want that, and um, I've just been, uh, you know, asked to make Harry Potter. I'm, I'm not sure well. I'm going to say yes or no, but uh, <laughs> but you know, uh, Harry would be dressed in a sari very soon. <laughs> <laughs> Don't quote me, please. So how do you deal with, with 19th century dialogue and making it accessible for a modern audience? You know, we didn't consciously want to do that. I mean, we didn't want to modernize the dialogue, especially Julian. He's so sort of, he feels very much at home in an extremely, I don't know if it's early 19th century exactly way of speaking, but we very much went, I, I mean, like I bet on that, like when, when, when Becky says I bet on that, it, it sounds very modern, but it's actually from the book, you know? Th odd things like that are very strangely modern. Oh, that's a perfect English expression. You can suck up all you wish once I'm warm. It's a perfect, it's a completely English expression. Yeah, <laughs> I can guarantee that. <laughs> so we, I thought we invented sucking up. No, uh, no, no, the English. <laughs> <laughs> Snubbing and sucking up. <laughs> they did that very well, both of them. Okay, if you can compare the process of adaptation versus starting with an original script. Well, it's uh, much harder with an original script in a way because you have to invent everything and um, while it is liberating, it can also be very woolly, you know, you, you have to really pickle it in the way a classic is pickled, you know, is a beautiful thing. Um, the, the key to classics, I mean, it really helped that I've loved this novel for many, many years and I wasn't doing a quick swat on it, you know. Similarly, Julian, he had also loved this thing. So when you have lived with something a long enough time, even though you're not thinking of adapting it, the distillation somehow really was much quicker, you know. Becky and Rawdon, Amelia and Dobbin as counterpoint, Osborne, anything that made me really cry, I put in, you know, like, <laughs> like Osborne and, you know, hating his son and then striking him off the family by um, uh, Amelia sacrificing her son. These are things I just understood that the audience would care. You know, they would care about you know my people like this. You know, I literally went like that. But I also knew it very well, so I didn't get that confused. And then Julian equally knew it, and we really just had a love fest. We really liked each other. And actually, not to sound like I'm a hustle, hustler for it, but we wrote a book on the making of Vanity Fair, uh, which is in the bookstores now. It's a beautiful coffee table book, mm -hmm. but it has actual, really truthful, no puff piece, um, emails between me and Julian for over one, about over five months making the script. Mm -hmm. So you, it's a very good, uh, truthful way to show how we milked the novel at every single moment that we could. Okay, how are you able to break into a world dominated by white male directors? 
<laughs> well, actually, you know, that's an answer to my previous question. It was not a striving to belong to the A-list. I just didn't care, you know. And, and it was difficult, you know, not to want to, you know, like, I'll, anyway, so, that, so it wasn't like a, it wasn't a striving for mine. I, what I wanted to do was actually only to do what I wanted to do uh, and hope that I could manage to make that work. And so I chose not to, if I had gone there to throw my sari in the ring, uh, I would uh, get only teenage comedies and girl coming of age type movies. That's how they ghettoize mostly women directors, you know, if you want to start in Hollywood. But I never wanted that. So I just used to, I, I, that's why I produce my own films, usually my own, uh, for Mirabai films. Because like in Mississippi Masala, I just put the money together in every single film of mine. It, it is the rare film that, uh, that I would accept from the outside, like Vanity Fair, because of obvious reasons, you know? Uh, I love this book and so on. But uh, I think that's what's different with m my trajectory than a Hollywood, you know, situation. And that's what I like, uh, to answer the young man's question, is now they come to me knowing that it, they're going to get a sensibility. And it's a, one of my big, big criteria when people come to me with outside film, an idea, then I think, can anybody else do this movie? And if anybody else can do it, then I don't do it. Because um, <laughs> then why, why do it, you know? I want to ask you one last question, which is, uh, you started off making documentaries, and, and, and I assume with documentaries, it's, it's always a discovery process as you go. Now you obviously have such strong ideas about what you wanted to do with Vanity Fair. But what, what, did you, what surprised you along the way? Like what, what did you learn about the material or what, uh, in, in the process of making the film? Was there anything that, that surprised you? Well, um, two things. You know, in reading about London, in early 19th century London, the, the, the milieu of Vanity Fair, that it was the filthiest, most cacophonous, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. city, and, I, and, and people could not hear themselves talk outside, and they literally described the crap and the coal and all of the stuff, yeah. and I had never seen that on screen, mm -hmm. and that's yeah. what I wanted to set out. Yeah. And what surprised me very interestingly was when I would ask for, like, pigs from the early 19th century, they actually have a medieval piggery society, you know? <laughs> That's a weird answer to your question, but it's true. That's a surprise. I mean, it, so it was like <laughs> how to make, you know, those streets, this, and the greatest uh, surprise yeah. was when my friend who edited Salam Bombay, Barry Brown, came to visit, and he, mm. on Bath, when we had these huge streets of, you know, all kinds yes. of vendors, and you saw it, uh, and said, you know, this is like Salam Bombay, he said. Mm. And it was really not what I had intended or thought about, you know, consciously, but that's what we had done, which was great. Um, but the other surprise was that the question that Thackeray asks, you know, which of us is happy in this world, mm. which of us having met his desire is content, that question is completely timeless, that is the essential question, and that every, to plumb that question in every character's journey that I was trying to tell was actually uh, plumbing it or mining it so that it would come to the forefront as a question that we as a modern audience would ask ourselves after seeing the film. And we'll leave it unanswered. So uh, <laughs> thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.